All right, so we are picking up with the Galatians class on, we're going to be on page 77, which is a topical discussion about how do we avoid the same traps that the circumcision party could fell, fell into. So last week we talked about how, what exactly is freedom in Christ? And I think one of the things we have to realize is that it's, it's got not just one thing, but two things, right? When you talk about freedom to people, they think it's ability to choose. But if that's all that you think it is, then a person who is able to just take as many drugs as they want and has an addiction is still free, right? Well, I think we recognize that's a certain form of slavery. So it's, it's got to be two parts, freedom and then self-control, right? When you have self-control, and then you could have the ability to choose, then that's actual real freedom. By the way, that's the kind of freedom that God actually has. If you think about it, God can, in a certain sense, do whatever he wants, yet he has self-control, so he doesn't do things that are evil, right? God cannot lie, it says, for example. And in freedom, I think it's best understood as freedom from certain things, but also freedom to do something positive. So freedom from your past, freedom being controlled by others, by either their lies or by their opinions, but also freedom to have hope, freedom to have a future and a new identity and be a new type of person. One thing that's kind of funny, I think, is that if you look at the size of the New Testament, so your New Testament has about 138,000 words in the Greek. The Old Testament has roughly two times as much as the, Old Testament, as the New Testament, which makes sense because it has also, even in the parts that, are about, that have rules, there's a lot more rules because the Jews kept messing up and they kept getting more rules. But then you go to the Talmud. Okay, if you want to see what happens, this, this is totally what humans do. The Talmud, if you ever read it, it reads like this. Well, Rabbi Akiba said this, but Rabbi Halal believed this. And Rabbi, it's everybody's opinions. And it, it winds up being 13 times the size of the New Testament, which is really funny if you read it because you do not get big picture thinking. You get a lot of small picture thinking, right? If you end the Old Testament, the Old Testament talks about how, you know, one day this prophet's going to be coming and he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. The New Testament opens with John the Baptist, preparing this big picture story. Now you read the Talmud, okay, you end with the Old Testament saying there's God's going to come and he's going he's to make this big change that's going to come. You read the Talmud, and the Talmud says, well, when we say the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6.4 every day, you know, how, when do we say it? Do we say it in the evening? How long do we say it? Do we pronounce the Chet this way? Or do we, I mean, seriously, this is like this low-level thinking. This is precisely what happens when humans get involved. They just start making rules after rules after rules after rules. On, and they miss the big picture, right? This is precisely the brother mentality Jesus had a problem with when he showed up. And if you've worked for a big company, this is totally what happens to big companies too. I'm working for one now that went from very small to very big, and we're struggling because we've kind of missed the big picture and we're struggling. I haven't worked on a successful project now for five years, and yet we've got all these extra processes. It's like, what have you gotten us? We haven't sold anything successfully in five years. That's, that's new at least. Uh, so this is totally what humans do. All right, uh, with that said, then Alan's gonna lead us in a prayer and then we'll get started. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we're so thankful today that we can be here to study and to learn. We pray that you live for our brother and guide him, help him, Father, to endure the things that prepare. Help us to listen carefully to apply the things for our life. Help us, Father, to truly understand what we need our freedom, freedom in Christ, and freedom from the, the world and, and things that would try us and hurt us. Father, we pray that you will watch over us and be with those who are um, in need of you in various different ways. And we pray that you forgive us for our sins. 
Have you ever read a Bible book where you were studying it and it just, it felt so good? Right? You felt relief kind of wash over you and you just, things were making so much sense. The first time I really studied Galatians, I can honestly tell you I felt none of those things. I, you remember when I opened the class and I asked you, what would happen if Boyd took you in a room and said, I am shocked that you are so quickly turned from this gospel, which is not another gospel. And you said things like you felt fear or shock, or you're sitting there questioning, like, well, what did I believe? What, what, what is this real gospel? What was this false equivalent? The first time I really studied Galatians, I, I had been told for a while that as long as you didn't apply the Old Testament laws, right, if you didn't push on those laws, then it wasn't an issue. And so there wasn't really a, a bigger picture here that was bigger than just the Old Testament. And as I read it, I realized that's, that's not true, right? There is something else going on. And in hindsight, it just seems obvious. Could, can, can you imagine being like, listen, you can't apply, you can't force people to follow these other old laws. Oh, but, but you can make up new ones that are not even found in the Old Testament? Well, that doesn't make any sense either. And I, as I started to read it, I realized it's not just about the Torah. It's bigger than that, too, because it is about the Torah, but there's points, though, that apply to any set of system where you just say, here's a whole checklist, and you just follow this, and you can be saved. It's not going to work for any checklist. None of them will do. And there are two things that got me to think this way, was that, one, when Paul talks about the Torah, then he talks about the other false equivalents, the, the replacement. Like, if you don't have Torah, then you have something else. And he starts talking about things like relationships. And he starts talking about grace. Okay, but that, that's not, it's not just a, any sort of checklist, right, of being corrosive to that. Not just the Torah. Any sort of thing can fall into that trap. Or at least this, I think, misguided view of the Torah. And then the second thing was that the, if you need a single verse that tells you that Paul's talking about more than just the Torah, he's actually talking about any sort of law. There's one in Galatians, which is Galatians 3.21. And it says, if any law... And if you read this in Greek, it's, even, it's really clear. If any law could give life, it would have been this one. And so it's bigger than that. Of course, he is talking about the Torah, but there's a bigger picture there. And, you know, I think sometimes what happens is, is that we have verses that when they land, they hurt. And so what we do is we, we kind of wrap them with a, bubble, a bunch of bubble wrap so they can't hurt us anymore. And it's true, it can't hurt us anymore. But also it can't heal you anymore. You know, it's kind of like a, if you take a scalpel and you wrap it in bubble wrap, it can't hurt. But neither can it heal. And so I, I, kept, I started reading this. I'm like, this is not, this is, it's not just about the Torah. It's not just about specific things in the Torah. It's bigger than that. And so I had to rethink a lot of things, which I did. And I think Galatians, Galatians caused me to rethink a lot of things. And the other one was 1 John. I read 1 John, started really studying that a lot about the same time. And it, it woke me up. And so I'm bringing all of this up to say that if you feel like you could fall into that trap, if you feel like you were falling into that trap, then I'm going to tell you there's at least one other person in this room who understands where you're going with that. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is how do we avoid falling into those traps? We shouldn't assume it's like, oh, yeah, they, I mean, the circumcision party who takes them seriously, they fell into and think that we can never do it ourselves. Okay, remember what Jesus, what happens when Jesus comes. He talks to a lot of religious people who actually didn't get it. So I think this should be a warning sign that it's easier to fall into some of these traps than one may think. So with that said, 
It's page 77. Let's start off by profiling what the opponents were thinking. What were they thinking? What were they feeling? How did they approach things? I will say that we, we have to kind of we have to do a little bit of uh, use our imagination to figure out what they probably were thinking. We have some data, but we have to fill in some of the holes. Part of that, because we're only hearing one side of the telephone. You ever heard that where they talk about one side of the telephone call? So we, but you can take some of the arguments that Paul makes and you can reverse them. And then you can figure out what they were probably saying, because they were probably saying the opposite of that. So let's do that. Let's talk about what do we know about the opponents? Attitudes, motivations, mindset, anything like that. Right, so they weren't willing to stick with what they had. They wanted to break out and go back to the checklist. Okay, yeah, that's the first one. Uh, I think it's up, Roy? They wanted Jesus, but they wanted to add to it. Okay, so they wanted Jesus, and they wanted to add to it. Now, this is important because I think it's easy to think, oh, well, they didn't really want Jesus. But actually, I think that this group was somebody who claimed to want Jesus, which is a little concerning because that means just because they say they want Jesus doesn't necessarily mean they aren't falling into this trap. Yes, Raymond? Okay, requirements of the flesh for salvation. And I chuckle a little bit because with circumcision, that was literally true. And I think this is a good point too because I think Paul, I don't think that, that humor, that connection was lost on Paul, which is precisely what he talks about, the flesh, the works of the flesh, which is literal and, but means more than one thing. Yeah, good point. Yes, right. I like the way you put it, gatekeeping, right? That, that I think is exactly what was going on there. They want to be the gatekeepers. And so that pushes, pushes them in a position of power. And I mean, this is, the Catholic Church has a history of that. I mean, this is what kicked off the Reformation. What's interesting too about that, because I think your point's dead on. When you look at this, it's, when Jesus ran into issues with the Pharisees, you have to ask the question of what was going on there? And I think a lot of it was that he would just not bow to their power. Like, well, you've got this all figured out. We've got all these rules, we've got all these systems, and we've got all these people been educated. And Jesus comes in, and he just drops a bomb on it and just takes a flamethrower to it, uh, which was removing them from that position of power. There's got to be something more psychologically going on than just what they were saying. It's also noteworthy that if you, if you look at the way Christianity has been historically, it has been really the opposite of this sort of gatekeeping. There's a, an article I read in, I think it's the Society of, Politi- Society of Political Scientists Association. And this guy by Robert Woodbury, and he's trying to answer the question. When we look at the rise of democracy, which is really kind of the opposite of gatekeeping, it's supposed to be that everybody has positions of influence, did Christianity affect that? And he comes to the conclusion, the answer was yes. And a lot of people, you hear some stuff where the atheists will say, I've heard Sam Harris, for example, will say that, no, Christianity didn't cause these things to happen, right? It didn't have a positive effect on society. Society was already going that direction, and Christianity just came with it. That can be proven to be false, and Woodbury proves it. And what Woodbury does is he says, I'm going to look at cultures that were anti, that did not have cultural attributes that would cause them to want democracy, 
And then look what happens when Christianity gets, shows up there. And he says that he shows, and he has statistics to back it up, that it changes society because it wants people, first of all, everybody is supposed to know how to read. They want everybody to know, because they want people to know the Bible for themselves. This is a subversion of this whole idea that, well, there's some religious guy. You ask him, and he'll tell you the opinions you should hold. It was precisely the opposite. They said, we want you to study the Bible for yourself. Doesn't matter if you're poor, if you're a slave, or if you're a woman, right? And so this, is what, this actually changes things. And he points out that if you look at the cultures that had this, they, when, when Christianity would come in, they would start publishing more books. Because books weren't just intended for some high-up elite. It was intended for everybody to be able to understand this stuff. Even in cultures that it had the press, the printing press, way, or not the printing press, but ability to make writings, way before other cultures. They'd had them for hundreds of years and nobody really used it. And then Christianity shows up and these, these missionaries start saying, hey, we need to start publishing books for normal people. So to your point, this was a subversion of that gatekeeping. I think that's, yeah, this is a good point. Yes, Brett. Yeah, just to support that, um, chapter four, um, he's talking about how they would have done anything for Paul um, and then ask, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? And then there's this insight from what Ryan was saying. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. So they're building you up for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you make much of them. So it is that gatekeeper, I have the power. Um, it's all, it says it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you. Um, but he's perplexed and um, anguishing over them. So yeah, I think... I think Ryan is right that in a in a culture where you gain your power and your standing by being uh, respected and uh, adored by the masses, that's you have to figure out what will make you that, and that's what that seems like that's what they're trying to do here is being important, making making themselves important by using the law the law, and all these things as, as a burden that nobody can really bear. Yeah, I mean, to your point, I mean, Paul said, specifically says he, does, he knows their motivations are not right. It's just to make for them, right? They're not worried about you. They're not worried about Jesus. It's for them. Yes, Mike? I think this has been said, and maybe this is a little more general, but it's interesting when you stop and think about Judaizing teachers I mean, there's an identity that they don't want to give up, right? To identify themselves as a Jew first and then a Christian. And I think it's also something that we can fall into where we have an identity as a Christian that stands on this principle. But yet, if someone comes and shows us it's wrong, we still maybe want to hang on to that because that has been our identity for so long rather than stopping to, to realize, you know what, truth trumps identity. Yeah, oh, my truth trumps identity, right? Yes, it, unless that identity is in Christ and then it's both the same one. No, I agree with you. I think this is exactly what's going on. It's like, we, but we're Jews, right? We've got this long history and we've got, I mean, many Jews have died literally supporting circumcision. I mean, there's history behind this. And all of a sudden, give that up. Well, that's just giving up our identity. We've just made so part of ourselves, and it turns out it's, it's not the main thing, though. But we've made it the main thing. I mean, you look at this when... When people, I remember somebody saying, and they were talking about politics. They said, take stands, but not sides. 
And I think there's a lot of wisdom there, because what happens when you start taking sides is that the side matters more than the stand. When that side starts to shift to a totally different view, you just change with them. What happened? What's the point of taking a side then at that point? But people do that. Yes, sir? There's an emphasis on self and not God, and they were interested in numbers more than souls. Yeah, there's a focus on self and not God. Paul makes that point, and a focus on numbers, right? I mean, that, that's true. Get, getting them in my tribe. Right? I don't really want you. I just want you. I just want you to be in my tribe so I have that number higher, which, you know, that's how politics works as well. Yes, Bob? They had a tendency to make things more difficult than they actually were. And we do that too. <laughs> they have a tendency to make things more difficult than they were, and we have a tendency to make that, do that too. Yeah, that, that is true. We, we don't like the whole principle of keep it simple sometimes, you know. <laughs> And it's not to say there aren't complicated things you have to learn, but there's a real tendency, I think, where we start to get into some, because there are some complicated things, but it's real easy when the complicated stuff starts being something that's like, well, you have to hold exactly my view on this, and you have to split the hair the way I have to split this hair, and, and you've got to know this before you become a Christian. I remember it was Chris Whitsitt who mentioned that in a sermon about how, you know, think about how fast people become Christians. They learn a little bit about Jesus, and very quickly they become Christians. What we didn't do is say, well, hold on. We're going to have to take about five years because we're going to need you to split about 95,000 hairs before you can finally become a Christian first, right? But sometimes people feel like that. I saw another hand raise. Was it Mitch? So we kind of touched on it, but maybe I'll say it a little bit differently. They wanted to be justified by their works or by the flesh. They wanted to be justified by what they were doing and not relying on the grace of Jesus. Yeah, they wanted to be justified. I don't think we've really quite pointed this out to this class. I'm glad you brought this up. They want to be justified by their works. This actually goes well with Boyd's point about self, right? It winds up being focused on self. It's like, listen, guys, humans were the problem, not the solution, okay? We're the problem side of it. Jesus is the solution. So we, as soon as we start doing that, we start to shift. I think it was Raymond who said earlier, uh, not in this class, but in a prior one, about how as soon as we start doing that, we start shifting our focus away from Jesus, and when we do that, we wind up focusing so much on the nature of the cancer, we forget about to take joy in the cure. And that winds up not working for us. Yes, Mitch. For themselves and for others, they would focus on behavior instead of the heart. Okay, this is a big one. Focusing on behavior versus focusing on the heart. The best way to change behavior is to focus on the heart. But I, I, I've seen that that trend to focus so much on do this, do this, do this, do this, and it doesn't work. If you want people, I'll, I'll give you one. If you want people to show up every Sunday morning, the thing that you don't do is to say, show up Sunday morning, show up Sunday morning, show up Sunday morning. That's actually not going to work. You have to get them to want to be here on Sunday morning because they want to learn about God and they love their brethren, right? That, that works. But the second one, you just make it a responsibility. You just made it dull. You ever had that with kids where... You're trying to teach them something, and as soon as they realize they have to do it as part of school, they're, they're like, I'm out. You know, they just they don't want to do it with it. But if they choose to do it, even when it's educational things, you can kind of slip it in there. They love it. That's just how humans are. Uh, Mitch, did I see your hand raised too? Okay. Yes, ma'am.
guilty of switching our desires to be versus where our hearts and relationship. We keep talking about relationship. What is our relationship? And we should be examining now. Yeah, so we're, we have to go back and examine how does that, how, go deeper, right? And start thinking about it like a relationship. You know, it's funny you say it too, because if you read about how the history of, of Jews, uh, I remember reading this, there was a guy who had a lecture, and he's like, I'm going to teach you the whole history of the Jews in like two hours, this professor. And it was actually really interesting, because it's big picture stuff. He mentions in there about how the history of Judaism was that Jude, the, the law became our identifying marker. And this is, remember, this is a Jewish scholar. So he was saying stuff that I'm like, I'm shocked to hear this, even though I think it's clearly true. He said, but eventually we kept the works of the law to identify ourselves, but we, we actually ignored the whole part about God. That wasn't really relevant anymore. It was actually more about our identity markers. It goes back to the whole idea of our identity, right? But it was really a nationalistic identity. And so the whole part about with relationship with God was not really important anymore. It was about being us. And I'll tell you, I think there's, a, there's some truth in this because I knew a guy who told me, he's like, oh, I love going to synagogue. And I was like, really? I thought you were an atheist. He's like, I am. Well, why would you go to synagogue? You're an atheist. He's like, oh, but it, you know, we have this rich heritage and see what's going on there? It's about these identity markers. It's really about nationalistic identity, but not about a religious identity. What else? Here's one that, and, and Mitch brought, asked this earlier. He, he wanted to talk about the fear aspect. Do you remember when Peter, when the circumcision party showed up, right? And Peter, from fear, had to actually, well, he, he felt compelled to withdraw from the Gentiles. And I think there's an indicator there. They were using these other things of control or fear to motivate people. So they weren't talking to people to make change their minds. They were using power to make things happen. And I think that's an indicator too, a bad indicator. Another thing too, I think we've kind of covered this, but there's another aspect I want to cover is that they were willing to reject authority actually, including Paul. They needed to get Paul out of the way. And really, in a certain sense, they needed Peter to get out of the way. Because then Peter went to, the, he was the first one to go to the Gentiles. Okay, so they're using fear to control him, but Peter clearly held a different view. So, I mean, he won in a certain sense, but he, obviously his mind wasn't changed. Peter was just being a hypocrite. But even more so, they were rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Right? I mean, these works had happened. They knew about it. When Peter recounts what happens in Acts chapter 11, and in Acts chapter 11 comes after Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius is saved. And the Holy Spirit does a work, which is to assign not just for Peter, but for the, uh, his fellow Jews. He brought six Jews with them, so they saw it too. And then these works kept happening. You look in Acts, it happens at several key points in the book, showing the Gentiles are in. They rejected all of that. So there's Paul and the Holy Spirit in order to hold their views. But this is pretty strong stuff, but they were willing to do that. Another thing is that you also notice how they're willing to twist the truth. At one point, they claim, Paul says, well, if I was preaching circumcision, I wouldn't be being persecuted for this. Well, the obvious claim is they must have been claiming, well, that Paul was actually saying to be circumcised. Now, he did actually have Timothy circumcised, but they didn't ask enough questions to figure out why that was, right? So if you notice somebody who's not, who's not really 
willing to cite sources in the proper way, not thinking them through, and really honestly open to the truth, I think that's a bad sign. And it's certainly something that they were, they didn't really want to ask some of those questions. All right, anything else before we go on to the next one? Okay, so why do you think the Circumcision Party or people like that would have been more comfortable with the works of the law? Because clearly they were. Same reason we are, which is, yeah, there is a certain comfort with this. I think several times in the class somebody has mentioned something about it where uh, I think it was Leanne who said something about how freedom is kind of scary. We're a little bit fearful of it. So yeah, it's, it's not just untrue for us. Misha? So they, were, they grew up with it. It's what they were used to. So it could just be it's hard to change. Bob? Selective list of people, you mean, or the rules? Check, selective checklist. Okay. You've done this. Yes, you could stick them in a spreadsheet and you could check each one of them off. Right, it, it does make it pretty easy. I, I will tell you, and I remember one point, and I knew this made no sense at the time, but I didn't know why it didn't make any sense. I remember thinking, I wish I lived under the old law because I could do exactly that. I could go through and be like, well, I'm going to feel saved because I went check, 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 and I, I got them all today. All, 613 of them. I mean, it's a long list. But I could, give my, I could give myself a pat on the back and then I could feel saved. And I knew it didn't make any sense. And what was weird is that once I kind of worked around it, a couple of people I had mentioned it to is like, yeah, I used to wish I lived under law. And I remember the first person, one of the people I said it to, he looked at me in shock. He said, me too. I was like, okay, how common is this? You know, but apparently more common than you would think. Raymond. Yes, okay, this is dead on. It's measurable, which makes it comparable. Now, this is, this is going to be weird, because I think when you fall into this, you find two things happen. One, you can feel superior, but also never feel good enough. And at first, that seems like, well, how could those both be true? I am convinced it's both true. Because as soon as it's measure, it's comparable, so that makes you feel, I did 610 laws, and that guy only did 550. Okay, but the problem is you didn't do 613, and there's 613. So, yes, you're better than them, and you're still lost. You didn't do the law. And so, it, it sounds like a curse, right? It, well, it does sound like a curse. Yes, exactly, exactly. Jill. Yeah, it gives you a sense of control. I can fill out the spreadsheet. Like, I don't have to, it, it, it puts it in my boat. You know, I can control this. Uh, Sarah.
Wait, okay, this is, this is a good point. The opposite perspective is that you have to give yourself to someone else who's going to do something for you, which means you have to have humility. Right, I mean, I, I think that's very true. Right. Well, it's how everything else in life works. Like, that's, I mean, it's how your job works, it's how the legal system works. Um, I mean, you, you keep track of you know, all these rules that you follow. So if someone challenges you, you can defend yourself because uh, I've done it. Um, and you, you kind of put a box around it. You know what the expectations are. And yeah. Yeah, I think this is actually really intuitive, I think, right, to your point. This is how the rest of, this is how the law works, like the, the governmental law, okay? This is how our jobs tend to work. Uh, I, and I like the way you put it too, because you said, then you can defend yourself. And I think one of the attributes you know when you're falling into this is when you get into saying, well, I could make an argument, right? So I could stand there in front of God and be like, well, but, but God, and you, okay, hold on, like that, See, now you're trying to argue with God that maybe you're good enough. This is not a good scenario. By the way, you got to remember, too, this is not limited to religious people by any means. Like, if you want to see the most legalistic people, the people of the world, because you ask them, are you a good person? And they're going to say yes. And you can say, why? Well, because I do good things. You do good things. Of course, you do bad things, too. That's the problem with it. But that's how they think. They think they're going to be good enough. Yes, ma'am. If you've got a checklist, you know I did this, 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 this. But if you're living on principles, you have to figure out what that means. And that's uncomfortable for some people. And you might constantly be thinking, did I get it right? And especially if you don't have the kind of relationship yeah, I, so the, as soon as you go into principles, it gets a little bit squishy. Like, it's easy if you have a checklist, I can just say I did it. But if it's on a principle, you have to do a little bit of work to figure out how do I apply this principle? How do I apply the principle of love? I thought, I mean, the real high end, the principle of love, how do I apply that? It's not super clear. And the thing is, I, I mentioned this before, I'm an, I'm an engineer. I used to be a biotech engineer, and everything has a process and protocol when you're an engineer. And I've heard people refer to the Bible as like my guidebook for life, and I don't have a problem with that. But I, it's almost like I hear them talk about it as if it's a protocol that tells you exactly how to act in every situation. It doesn't. As soon as you start applying it, you're like, what do I do here on some of these situations? And I think you have the right principles, but you, just, you do have to figure it out. And then there's that second part you mentioned about how, and then there's that question, but did I do it right? Because I had to do a little bit of interpretation. And without the relationship aspect, you never feel like you're good enough. Uh, Mitch? This also gives you a sense of identity. So if we are all, if, if I have a certain checklist, do you have a certain checklist? I mean, we want to be connected. We want to be um, unified. And so we just search out. Do you have the same checklist I do? Okay. Where, I mean, in 6, chapter 6, uh, I mean, you mentioned it, but if, if our identity is grace in Christ and love, that's a whole lot harder to identify, like, what does your loving your neighbor look like? It looks different than my loving my neighbor. How, 
I, I don't know that I can identify with that. Uh, and how, how does your Sunday morning look? Does it look the same as my Sunday morning? It, if we could grasp the idea of being under love, uh, I think it would be free. Yes. Yeah, this is part of As soon as we go into this checklist mentality, I have to sit there and audit everybody else's checklist to make sure your checklist is, it, it can be no, well, depending how this goes, you have to have at least the same number of items that I have. And if you have more, maybe that's okay. Although I, some people get really irritated when it turns out you're even more restrictive than I am, right? So that becomes a problem too. So we got to sit there and compare checklists. And if you go into the mentality like that, you're going to find there are verses that don't fit into this very well because there are times when if you think you have freedom, like I said, it's free, freedom to love, sometimes that means I'm willing to give up my freedoms for you. So my checklist becomes, in a certain sense, I guess, a little bit longer. I, don't, I mean, I, you shouldn't have checklists, but you know what I mean here. But that means not everybody's checklist is the same. But that's the point. It's supposed to be different in that case. Brad. Um, yeah, maybe another way to say that is rules limit production. Um, if you set a rule, hey, I want you to get um, five things done today. Then when you get those five things done, you're like, all right, I'm done. If I say, hey, I want you to, to get some things done today, just however many, you know, whatever, you might have gotten seven things done if you hadn't been, hadn't been if, the, if the rule hadn't been to get five things done. Um, and we, we talk about this in customer service. Like, I don't want to provide a rule for customer service. I want you to give good customer service. And so when you say the rule is, like, um, the other day we were trying to find a place to eat. And we walked into this restaurant, and there were, like, three or four open tables right next to each other. And we said, hey, we've got six people. How long? Hour and a half. Oh, okay. Well, what if we just split up and you see four because they were all tables of four? We'll put the kids over here. We'll eat next to them at this table. Okay, well, that's going to be 30 minutes. And we're like, there are tables right there. There was some rule that she was following that was limiting her ability to serve. And so this is why guys ask, who is my neighbor? Because they want to limit. They don't want the same thing. They don't want to have to just do it until it is uncomfortable. They want a limit so they don't. They can reach that limit, feel like they have done, they've earned their salvation, and then not have to continue further. And Jesus said, you "Gotta help. You gotta um, be helped by a Samaritan." Or Maybe this Samaritan was actually this guy's neighbor. What do you, how do you feel about that? That is way further than anybody would want to go. No, I'd rather have a rule. I'd rather have a rule. Right. I, I, okay. Rules limit production. Right. It, it tends to set focus on the floor, not the ceiling. Right? When, you have the, when you're talking about life being a Christian, it's like you have to be like God. This is what I mean by a ceiling. It's way up there. And you say, I don't, I, I don't meet that checklist item. This is the problem with the checklist. Is that people who have checklists don't have a checklist long enough because it needs to be, be like Jesus. 
Okay, but, but that's way high. You always have room to grow. But as soon as you meet the rules, check, 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 you're done. And you can just say, peace out. I, I've got my salvation. I'm good to go. So it sets the floor, right? Uh, nine. Exactly. It requires everything, 100%. You, you, when we talk about the tithe, or if you ever talk to religious groups, Christian groups, it'll say, we do the tithe. It's like, oh, okay, well, great, you give 10%. You're supposed to give everything. You're supposed to give 100%. The rich young ruler was not willing to go that far. I also, like you mentioned, the, the robes and clothes. Do you ever notice how religious groups, they have the weirdest hats? It's, they're always weird. They're just either way too small or way too big, usually way too big. Why is that? And I think part of it is like, it's a big sign. See me, I'm a religious person, I've got a weird hat. <laughs> they, it's all about appearance in that case. And yes, Mitch. So I referenced, <coughs> I didn't actually go to the verses, but kind of tying into what Nyan was saying. Um, starting in verse seven, do not, be, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are the household of their faith. I think that ties into love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor. Yeah, and that's a good point because something that stuck up for me there is it says you, you will reap according to what you have sowed. And then it says your own flesh. So you sow to your own flesh. Remember, there comes, comes that double meaning for flesh here. And then it, the opposite is the, the spirit. Yeah, good point. Uh, Rissa. Yeah, if we, move, if we lose that macro look, that's when we can start focusing on the traditions. Or like you said, I'm a Christian because I can tell you where I'm going to be on Sunday and you know, most of the time on Wednesday nights. But no, no, you're supposed to be a Christian every day of the week, 
right? And yes, there are times when we may suspend our freedoms because of the conscience of other people, but, but we still have to do those good things, though. That's the point. We can't just limit that. That, that we can't give up. Raymond. Right. No, I actually I agree with everything you just said because I think there's a tendency where it's like I gave, I put a check in on Sunday morning. Listen, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but there's more to it than that. There's a lot more than giving that. And it, I, you see that here in the positive sense. You see somebody who an issue comes up, and you know there's a problem that comes up very quickly after that. They get too much money. Right. But I, that's when it's working right. People are not saying, oh, well, I gave on a Sunday morning. Sorry, I can't really help you out. Which is, if, if you did take that view, this surprisingly looks similar to some of the issues that Jesus ran into. I'm sorry, my, my parents, I can't help them out because I've already given it to God. That's exactly the wrong attitude. And Jesus dealt with that. Uh, uh, Gary, uh, Gary and then Chris. Chris has had to say, actually, I'm going to go Chris first. He's had his hand raised forever. So this better be good, Chris. We've, we've kind of been doing this, but I really want to address question number three. <laughs> because what we're saying is kind of is, uh, the same issue. How, how can we be doing those same things? And I would say, what part of it do we not do? You know, that we, we have made more rules 13 times the length of the New Testament by dissecting each of the, of the things that we do. I think they also weaponized it, and I think we do the same thing. If you're not on my checklist, oh, you're 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 dissentious, and you're so we use those terms to quell, you know, squelch anything that's different than our than our view. Uh, and there's so many things that we have to we have to make that checklist our own, but but we have difficulty using the scripture to to prove it. So we go all kinds of directions, and it's like, oh, well, this, this is the way the church does it. Yeah, I, I like the phrase you used, weaponize it. So it's like we, we come to certain conclusions, and then we, we build that list, and we start using that list against other people, which is odd, because in some cases, it might be freedoms that you gave up because one person had a, a more restrictive conscience than you. So we, but then the next generation, that becomes a rule. And everybody has to hold that view, and we weaponize it. And one of the things that does concern me is sometimes we, we want to know who's in and who's out. That's not for you to know, okay? And so that's why we want that list, and that's why we wind up weaponizing it. simple things, like the name over the door. The Bible uses a lot of different names over the door, yet 
be, to us, that becomes a an in or out thing a lot of times. Oh, well, you're not in the body because your sign over the door doesn't say the right thing. All the way down the list, just multiple things that that we have to have our way. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Gary. Going back to what we were saying earlier, how the Jews kind of got away from God and they just focused on the law. They, they grew up learning the law. They, if they wanted to be a lawyer, they studied the law. And they got away from the, the premise and the, the foundation of justice and righteousness to just focus on finding the loopholes or making additions to the law from their mindset and elevating themselves in, into a position of power. And Jesus got on them and he said, you know, the law says honor your father and mother, but you guys have come up with this nifty little way of looking looking righteous by saying, oh, we, we put our money over into this account, which is dedicated towards the temple, so I can't help you out by this, this month, sorry. You know, and it, it's kind of come up here in conversation that the same problems that they had can work into our consciousness and our worship if we're not careful. Yeah, so How many times have we been accused of being legalistic because we say that with where the Bible speaks, we need to speak and we're silent. We're, we're silent. We need to remember and keep try to somehow portray to people that we're not just following rules for the rules' sake. It's God loves us. He gave His Son. He gave us these guidelines which help us to live a righteous life. And we need to try to convey that more because all of this process has really damaged religion in general in that sense. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think we really need to show people there's this, this word that we use often, and I don't know if people in the world even know what it is grace. Like, that's. That's what this is. It's actually freeing, you know, and unfortunately we kind of have to change people's perceptions on that because that's not how they tend to see people who are Christians, unfortunately. Yes, Bob? Exactly. And right back to the answer to the question, uh, they're more comfortable with the force of the law checklist because they feel in control. Even if you don't need that full checklist, you feel somewhat in control. Well, we're not in control. And we will never be in control. Jesus is in control. And it needs to be that way. And thus the big idea of grace. This, uh, their concept took God out of it. And we need to put God back in it. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, their concept took God out of it. I think that's exactly the case. Okay, so now that we have two and a half minutes left, See, somebody needs to go take out whoever's going to hit the bell, and then we can get extra time. So, all right. Uh, how can we fall into the same trap? I think we've already talked about this to some degree. And how do we avoid it going forward? Especially, I think, the going the for- how do we avoid it would probably be worth talking about. Yes, ma'am.
Yeah, I, amen. Grace is different for each individual. Because the situation is different. And I, you said something about how some people's roles are more visible. I worry sometimes that we tend to promote the people who are in the visible roles. And there's no good reason to think that it's any more important. Right? If you can preach well and teach a class well, that's actually not the most important thing by any means. It's actually what you do with the teaching that actually matters. Right? It's the quiet stuff that actually matters more. Right? But I think sometimes we can forget that. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, focusing on a relationship and then making sure that people have that relationship, regardless of how they, their walks, right? Their walks are a little bit different. Some have more public roles, some have more private roles. Uh, Gary? Just to give you an example of what the brothers spoke of earlier there, years ago, Deborah was scheduled to go to a class, and I think she was even supposed to be leaving the class. A friend called and had an emergency situation, needed Deborah's help. She went and helped that friend. The ladies at the class got on her for not showing up and leaving the class. And Deborah felt very bad about it. She asked me, she said, did I do the right thing? I said, why do you go to class? To study what the word says to help your neighbor. You, you had a neighbor that needed help. You didn't need to go to the class to, to keep talking about what you need to do. You just needed to do it. Yeah, <laughs> the whole point of this was to love your, love God, love your neighbor. And so if you go and you pick number whatever way down that list of studying, instead of loving God, we missed the big picture here, right? Which is what happened there. All right. Thanks, y'all.